This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's been two weeks since Ottawa announced that it is prepared to welcome an unlimited number of Ukrainian refugees and to allow them to stay, work and study here for up to two years. Well, since the announcement, thousands of civilians have been killed. Many more have lost their homes and nearly three million have fled the country. But there are bureaucratic obstacles preventing them from coming here, despite the fact that many Canadians are eager to bring them over. So we still have no details on the so-called Canada-Ukraine Authorization for Emergency Travel Initiative. Ukrainians are required to go to a Canadian embassy to submit biometric data. And most have no ways of getting there. And if they do, there are long waiting lists. So what do you think? Is it just a really bad example of bureaucratic red tape? 416-360-0740, toll free, 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by Giddy Mammon, partner at Mammon, Sandaluk, and Kingwell Immigration Lawyers, Daniel Lee, an immigration lawyer with Faskin Law, and Demyan Haiwaran, who is trying to bring his family over from Ukraine. Welcome, all of you. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us as well. So let us begin with Demyan. Uh, who are you trying to bring over and, and what have you encountered since you started trying to do that? Well, um, you know, I'm involved in a couple aspects of it. We have a personal connection. We have some family that uh, we are in the process of uh, evacuating. We had some cousins that are live in the western area. My brother lives in Geneva, and so he actually drove to Poland and, and grabbed them and then brought them to Geneva but we also have friends and families who uh, friends of our family who are trying to get their kids out or just trying to uh, maybe arrange having them come uh you know it's it's kids between 4 and 12 wow and what have and, you found in terms of the requirements well um you, you know i i i have a different a uh, little bit of a unique perspective i'm also involved in the ukrainian canadian congress and so uh, i'm involved in a group that's been meeting with the minister uh, of immigration and as well have some some meetings with senior government and so you know I'm I'm aware of some of the things they have planning they have planned but I'm not sure if it's fast or or you know fast enough or 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 extensive enough but I know there's a portal that's being launched uh, apparently tomorrow to expedite things but uh, you know we haven't seen it yet but you know the the challenge right now is you know how do these people get 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 into the system you know a lot of them have left, you know, they, they may or may not have complete documents. They may or may not have access to, uh, you know, uh, the internet. They might have, they, they might not have grabbed their phones, you know, who knows. But, you know, some of the requirements that are normally reasonable um, right now are, are unreasonable. Giddy Mammon, uh, what do you make of it? I mean, one of the things that has me scratching my head a little bit, uh, and it, this seems to be the case for Every kind of government initiative, I mean, you know, here in the private sector, we figure it out first and then announce it. And it seems like there's a big, you know, announcement with fanfare and people are really happy, but they haven't even begun to figure out how to get it done. Am I wrong? You know, we're almost three weeks out from the uh, launch of the attack on Ukraine. Uh, The brutal truth is we still don't have a visa exemption. Uh, we still we still don't have an exemption from biometric requirements. We still don't have an exemption from um, travel document uh, requirements like passports. The government has promised to waive fees, but if you can't get biometrics and you need a visa and there's no one to process it, uh, waiving fees actually costs you nothing because nobody's getting through the system. 
Uh, also, the government announced uh, in its uh, March 3rd release that, you know, they've allowed, uh, you know, apparently 6,000 Ukrainians to come to Canada, but that was uh, from January the 1st, uh, 22. Uh, this uh, this conflict started in uh, in mid-February, late February. So uh, really not much has been done. Um, you know, Canadians seem to think that we are very generous in how we deal with uh, refugee crises. Uh, the reality is we're, we're not really in these kinds of circumstances. Um, but we certainly like to take credit for it. In this situation, the government said that they're going to announce some things uh, two weeks, in about two weeks. Uh, I think tomorrow is about that day that we're expecting something. And it'll be very, very interesting to see if the government actually does waive visa requirements, because that's never been done before. But they said that they would. So we'll see if uh, if they're going to leave obstacles ahead of these people, so that even if the visa requirement is waived, uh, if you can't get to a visa post, if you can't get biometrics done, it's really a hollow promise. Uh, Daniel Lee, so first of all, can you uh, tell us exactly what the getting biometrics done uh, involves? Sure. So biometrics is basically your fingerprint and taking a photo. So usually under normal circumstances, you would um, get your biometrics completed um, over at a visa application center. The problem right now is it's difficult to um, make an uh, appointment with a visa application center from overseas um, because there are a lot of people applying for biometrics. And at the same time, um, for some of the um, biometrics uh, appointments, it also requires you to have um, um, uh, address in that location. So if you're fleeing from a country, so that will be difficult to to obtain. Um, and more importantly, is like currently like there are a lot of people from Ukraine who are, are applying for a visa to Canada, and they're currently located in Ukraine. And the two visa applications that are located in Ukraine are currently closed since February 24th. So this um, requirement for biometrics is making it really challenging for a person to finalize their visitor uh, visa application. Uh, Demian, uh, again, you know, back to my original observation, do you think it would have been too much to ask to have it figured out before it was announced with fanfare raising expectations? You know, I think I think every situation is different. I, I think, yeah, you know, I'm in the private sector. Uh, usually, there's there's less of a disconnect from announcing something and knowing how you're going to do it. You know, some some details can be sorted out later, but um, you know, Canada's done this before. You know, we've 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 taken in um, Syrian refugees. We've taken in other refugees in, in the last five years. And so, you know, you, you'd think there'd be a little bit of muscle memory on how, how this is done. And, uh, and you know, I, I would expect uh, we could have been a little more nimble on this. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hopefully and patiently awaiting what's going to happen tomorrow with, with, this, with the targeted launch of the portal. Um, but, uh, you know, and, until, we, until we actually see it, um, you know, we, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, I've heard anecdotally, just going back to the, you know, getting biometrics and visa, I've heard anecdotally about, you know, people being told, well, just mail it in and, and we'll get it back to you. But like, what, what, what person running that has nothing but their passport is going to mail it or, 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 or lose possession of it, you know, for a week? You know, that would be crazy. Uh, yeah. Uh, Giddy Mammon, um, my understanding is that we were able to bring Syrian refugees in a little quicker because uh, the government made some recognition that they were all, all Syrians were prima facie refugees. Uh, uh, can you um, expand on that? Um, sure. The impression that you have is actually not accurate. I wanted to jump in. I didn't want to interrupt. But the reality is that was a very different situation. The Syrian conflict was going on for years. This conflict has only been going on for weeks. There was an election, and all three parties had promised, as part of their election platform, to bring in, you know, 10, 15, 25,000 refugees. And what happened was the liberals who won the election were able to do it before December 31st of that year for only one reason. All of those people who were brought before December 31st, had applications in years before. They were sponsored, and they were just waiting for the government to finalize their application. Wow. And the government would actually call people and say, are you able to come to Canada before December 31st? If you are, we're going to immediately issue you 
your uh, uh, permanent residence documents so that you can come to Canada. And if you said no, they weren't interested in you. But these are people who are literally out of Syria for years. They were already in either Lebanon, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Jordan, uh, Turkey. Uh, they were already out of those that co- they were already in those countries, many of whom had work permits. Uh, they had jobs, they had homes, apartments, whatever. And we just simply finalized the process for them in five or six weeks. That's what happened. This is not the same case. And uh, even, you know, there's talk about, well, we evacuated people in uh, 2000, I think it was in six. 2006, uh, from Lebanon uh, during the conflict between Israel and Hezbollah. Uh, we brought 15,000 people very quickly. But again, that's a very different situation. We did not bring refugees from Lebanon. We brought back Canadian citizens who were living in Lebanon and who had the absolute right to come to Canada. And so the government of Canada simply leased uh, six or seven ships and brought 15,000 Canadian citizens back. This is a very different situation. Um, And the government is being credited for having done wonderful things in the past. But we have never waived uh, visa requirements. And I hate to be a, a skeptic, but the government, a couple, the government on March 3rd said, we're going to announce the, the program in two weeks' time. Well, two weeks is here, and I've already read reports that uh, Putin um, and, uh, and the leader of Ukraine may be reaching already some agreement that Ukraine is no longer going to be seeking membership in NATO. And so this conflict may be over in the next few days. Of course, we could be wrong. It could last for years. But I don't. I think that the government knew very well by saying in two weeks we're going to, now our, going to announce our, our program that the conflict could be dying down by two weeks. Well, uh, we can only hope, except uh, I, I don't know if you were listening to Bob's news, but uh, the Ukrainians are skeptical that this just might be a ploy to play for some time on the part of Russia. We don't know. We hope. I mean, the end of this conflict would be a very obviously a, a very good thing. Daniel Lee, is it reasonable to ask the government to waive those visa requirements, or does that involve a danger in itself? Uh, in, in my opinion, I think it's reasonable to temper waive those biometrics requirement or to um, provide a temporary policy for them to enter Canada on a visa-exempt basis, um, because biometrics was not required until 2018, so it's, it's a relatively new requirement. But more importantly is that when a person um, enters into Canada, the border officer would conduct a final um, examination to ensure that they are admissible to Canada, that they don't impose any security risks. So um, what the government is saying that um, by not requiring biometrics will create risk for Canadians, um, that argument um, doesn't really have a lot of basis for that because border officers would still examine to make sure that they are not inadmissible to Canada. Hmm. I hope we have uh, enough uh, Ukrainian-speaking border officers. Uh, Demian Hi-Warren, what what would you like to see? I mean, it, you know, even... You know, let's hope. But even if there is a cessation of hostilities, people have lost their homes. They've lost their worldly possessions. I mean, uh, many of them just have nothing to go back to. Yeah, you know, depending on what region you were, like it's it's being raised to the ground. Um, It's indiscriminate targeting of civilian infrastructure and things like that but it's it's you know it, it feels like scorched earth policy on the fact on 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 on, on, on what the invaders are doing here um you know we've all seen the the, the pictures online but um it's it doesn't seem to be uh, uh very surgical at all it doesn't seem to be targeting military it seems to be specifically targeting civilians um and and you know what do you go back to it's this isn't. Uh, it'll take a generation to rebuild some of that stuff. Uh, if any other, if some of those cities get rebuilt, like this, these are not small cities. We heard um, Zelensky yesterday give parallels to like, well, what would happen if if it was Toronto, if it was Vancouver, Edmonton? Like these are these are large cities. These aren't these aren't little villages. Millions of people live there. Well, exactly. Uh, what would you like to see? Uh, do you, do you, would you like to see, you know, no visa requirements, no biometrics? 
you know, um, you know, so, uh, you know, I was part of a, a group that was meeting with the government yesterday. So apparently there is no, no visa requirements, but there's automatically issued visas. So it's, you know, it's, but it's, it's, it's waiving the requirements, the pre-requirements. But, you know, I guess the big challenge is this two-week window that we've been waiting. We don't know what's going on, you know, so, so tomorrow we'll clarify a bunch of things. But, you know, in, in the discussions we were having, we were told it's probably a two-week approval process because there is some security vetting and things like that that need to happen. But, um, you know, when the government says two weeks, is it two weeks or, you know, two to six weeks? Um, that's going to be the big question and the challenge. And, you know, um, who knows what kind of traffic and and um, how, know, how, how it's going to work. I, it, 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 I think the biggest challenge was just the lack of knowing what everything is going to be, and then it just gets magically revealed, yes, you know, tomorrow, hopefully. Giddy, I mean, how do they approve visas if uh, there are a very limited number of embassies? Um, well, that's exactly the issue. The, the embassy in Ukraine is closed, so yeah. we have no people, we have no Canadian officers with their feet on the ground. So background checks, visa issuance, all of that becomes a challenge. And keep in mind, there are real practical barriers. We have families who want to leave together. But the father, for example, may be over 18 and under 60, and he cannot leave, not because Canada doesn't want to see him, but because um, the Ukrainian government has uh, banned all uh, travel from Ukraine to men between 18 and 60. So there are many, many barriers. And, uh, you know, I doubt that we're going to see many Ukrainians actually benefit from this program in a practical way. Um, but like, uh, like the other, um, my guest said, uh, we'll know, you know, hopefully tomorrow what this is actually going to look like. But if we're not going to uh, remove some of these barriers, uh, how do you expect these people to comply with the visa requirements in these circumstances? Demian, do you feel like you've kind of been misled a little bit? Um, I wouldn't say that. I, I, I think the, you know, it's this kind of fog of, of, of information. And so, uh, like I said, I'm, I kind of want to wait to, to form my final opinion based on what's released tomorrow. I know everyone has, you know, expectations of what they want. Uh, we'll see how it comes to be implemented. I, th- I think, uh, an important thing to point out too is that, you know, this is a unique demographic though of, 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 of people who will be coming over, you know, because of the, you know, like, like the, the, the other guest just said, you know, there, men 18 to 60 can't leave the country. You know, usually it's this kind of, you know, the quote nuclear family that gets coming over where, you know, even if you get work visas, uh, you can, you can do things and you can kind of get on your feet. Um, you know, a mom coming over with, you know, two, three kids. Um, even if she has a work visa, it's not really practical. So, you know, we're going to also need to talk about what happens in country, you know, if, if and when people come over to, to support and, uh, and, and, and provide, you know, a care, you know, that, that, the, you know, the, the classification of refugee comes with certain, uh, things like, you know, healthcare, uh, schooling, things like that. And so, you know, um, a lot of that is provincial based. So uh, there's a there's a lot of stuff that needs to be sorted out um, soon. It, it, it's interesting. I was uh, reading a report talking to a, a Ukrainian Canadian woman uh, who was trying to bring people over who uh, has a merchant bank, well off woman, and she's saying, "Well, if if we don't move quickly on this, we will lose the top talent from Ukraine because there are a lot of uh, people in the tech sector where we need." Workers, uh, Daniel Lee, is 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 that a realistic critique? No, that's that's realistic. Um, because there are a lot of talented individuals from Ukraine. Where if we could help them come to Canada earlier, then it will grow the Canadian economy. So, for example, like under the Canada-Ukraine authorizations for emergency travel initiative, um, the plan is to allow them to stay in Canada for up to uh, two years, and they can also work. Right now, we haven't received any information on um, when will that work permit be issued to them. Um, we don't know if they would receive the work authorization upon their arrival at the airport or do they have to apply for a work permit when they're inside Canada. And if they're inside Canada, then the processing time for that could take about four months. And that could be a 
a, a quite a substantial burden on them uh, for not being able to to work for up to four months. Um, I, I feel the government um, can can take more proactive steps to ensure that Canadian can um, can help more Ukraine talented individuals to come to Canada during this crisis. Giddy, it, 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 do you know if there's any option being considered if uh, you know the the women and the children come over first and then it becomes easy to bring the husband over because uh, we know from other situations that can also be a very difficult thing. Well, we're not in control of that situation. I mean, we can bring whoever we want to Canada. That we're in control of. But we can't force other countries to allow their people, their citizens, to leave the country. If the Ukrainian government sees fit to prevent men from leaving the country. There's nothing that we can do about it. No, no. What I mean is that when they are uh, ultimately allowed to leave, um, is is there any provision that you know of in this that would make it uh, easy as opposed to extremely difficult? Oh, no, it wouldn't be difficult. The, where there's the will, there's a way. If the, can- if the family has already been approved for permanent residence, uh, our law recognizes that we bring people as a family unit for a permanent residence. So that would typically include a husband and a wife and children. You could imagine situations, for example, that, um, that, a, that a, a woman has come to Canada with the children, left the husband behind, and then the husband is found to be uh, inadmissible to Canada on security grounds, for example, or for criminal grounds. Uh, that would be a, a unique situation. But if that person has been properly vetted, um, you know, you could have that problem. Do you have any idea of numbers before you were saying you don't think actually very many people will be able to take advantage of this? But uh, in terms of what kind of uh, requests or calls have you been getting on this, Giddy? Well, it's funny because I'm not only getting calls uh, at the office, but uh, I don't give my cell out to uh, very many people. And even on my cell phone, it just keeps ringing off the hook. Um, everybody is calling about a friend or a relative. I'm getting calls from the States. I'm getting calls from Canada, from Europe, uh, people who want to come to Canada from Ukraine. What they don't realize is that when we have a crisis, Canada doesn't tend to swing the doors open. Canada tends to swing the doors closed. Because as you said at the uh, top of the uh, segment, we have 2 million people who have now fled Ukraine. Canada will never be prepared or interested in receiving 2 million people. So if, um, you know, if it suddenly drops the visa requirement, we would be inundated with numbers that we've never seen before. And I want to repeat the point that Canada has never waived a visa requirement in terms of crisis. In fact, usually they tighten up uh, the restrictions. So even if you have a visa you'll find it very difficult to get on a plane to Canada because we now feel that, yes, at the time that we gave you this visa, we believed that you would come and you would return to your country at the end of your visit. But now it's very different. Even though you have a visa in your pocket, we now believe that if you come to Canada, you will not return to your country, and that creates a, a program difficulty for us. So it's, if, this, if this conflict... Um, is resolved in the next few days, I'd be very surprised if anybody would be coming here because the crisis will be behind us. If it lags for a, for a long time, then we might see. But like I said, I've been practicing in this field for 35 years. Uh, I have never seen once a, the government of Canada waive a visa requirement for a country in conflict. Uh, Daniel Lee, do you know what the situation is in the United States? Um, I took a look in the situation in the U.S. So um, the U.S. is not having any special programs to help people from Ukraine to come to Canada. Um, they're keeping the annual refugee quota from Europe to about um, 10,000. Um, so right now, um, there's no special pathway for those um, currently outside of the U.S. to enter um, the U.S. under the uh, crisis. Okay, um, I am uh, uh, shortly going to wrap things up. Damien, uh, what would you like to leave us with on this topic? You know, I, I think it's been a great discussion. You know, one, one of the things from my experience is, is the people that I've had contact with, um, they're, they're just trying to get their families safe. They're, 
you know, Europe is saturated, and you know, this this isn't a discussion for them, at least, of immigration. They're 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 proud to be citizens of Ukraine. They want to go back. They want to live there. Uh, they're just trying to keep their families safe. Daniel Lee. Um, in order to, to really help people from Ukraine come to Canada, we really have to waive the visa requirement. Um, otherwise, it's going to be challenging for them to come. And Giddy, last 20 seconds to you. Um, I hope that the government does everything that they uh, promise. I'm a little skeptical that uh, that we'll see the numbers um, that they uh, that the people hope to see, uh, but I'm willing to give them the benefit of doubt for the time being. Okay, well, we wait until tomorrow to see if the rules materialize and what they actually say. In the meantime, thank you so much, Demyan Haiwaran, Daniel Lee, and Giddy Mammon. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, SickKids is waiting for some young pediatric cancer patients to arrive from Ukraine. Uh, It's a fabulous initiative, and we'll get some of the details when we come back on the other side of the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Sick Kids Hospital is awaiting the arrival of two young Ukrainian cancer patients who will be treated at no cost to them and their families. The hospital says it has the capacity to take in more pediatric cases. And having a child with cancer is very traumatic in itself, having to face the hardships of war and the interruption of life-saving treatment is unimaginable. Bringing those children here, though, is a complicated and expensive undertaking. Brian McDonald is executive director of Aman Lara, a Canadian organization working to bring sick Ukrainian children to Canadian hospitals. He joins me now. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. No, thanks for having me on today. I'm, I'm thrilled to be talking to you. Uh, well, great. So, first of all, uh, what does Amon Lara mean? It's it's actually a Pashto word. I mean, we were founded uh, about seven months ago during the crisis in Afghanistan by veterans, former interpreters, and volunteers who wanted to help people get out of Afghanistan. So, Amon Lara is a is a Pashto Afghan word for sheltered path, and that's what we've given. We've given people a sheltered path. To get from Afghanistan to Canada, we've provided uh, evacuations for over 2,000 people in Afghanistan. And when the conflict bro- broke out in Ukraine, we, we looked at that and said, hey, we've got a skill, skill set that we've learned in Afghanistan. We want to apply that to Ukraine. So that's what we're doing now. So what is involved? So when we say two children are coming, obviously they're coming with their families. That's right. Yeah. So we've We've got two children and their families. Uh, we've got a, a medical evacuation aircraft that's taking them from Poland to Canada, and uh, that's ongoing right now. We're really looking forward to receiving them at Sick Kids in the near future. And uh, tell me about what it's like. First of all, I'm I'm sure that there's a lot of demand for those planes for procuring the plane, and uh, what does an operation like that cost? Well, in this case, we had a, a private donor come forward with uh, $200,000, so that secured the first plane. And that, you know, that donation was to inspire others to donate. So in the last two days, we've raised about $15,000 from average Canadians, and that's going to help us pay for subsequent planes. Uh, obviously, you know, the first one's the expensive one because you've got to prove the process and, and prove that it can be done. But we're already making arrangements for a second lift and and lift beyond that. So we want to establish a pipeline where we can fly uh, children and their families here to Canada and then fly medical supplies back to Ukraine. So it's uh, it's pretty exciting. Uh, be glad to see the first plane land, and, and then we're going to get these going uh, one after the other. That's the goal. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you have personnel on the plane, medical personnel? Yeah, there are, these are... You know, in this case, it's a medical evacuation aircraft, and it comes equipped with uh, with nursing staff. 
and it's you know it's equipped. It's almost like a flying hospital. I mean, it's equipped to to carry patients. Uh, we're hoping that you know in future, you know, we, we we match the aircraft to the needs of the patient. Uh, so not all patients will require this level of care, and so we may be able to move patients in future on more standard aircraft. Uh, but that, you know, this is this is entirely based on the medical needs of, of these children. Tell me how this thing came together. Were you in touch with a, a hospital in Ukraine, uh, and and how were these children selected? And can you tell us uh, about their condition? Yeah, so it, it it occurred very organically. I mean, as I say, we've been doing evacuations in in Afghanistan for for quite a while now, and, and fairly successfully. And so when this situation came up, you know, we were in touch with a number of our partners, and we looked at the terrible scenes of hospitals being bombed in Ukraine. And it was obvious to us that, that there was an opportunity to, to bring these people to safety in Canada. And so we just started working our network. We, we reached out to, to sick kids. I have a, a personal friend there, uh, Dr. Alex Barron. He was very helpful connecting us to sick kids. Uh, we, we reached out to other friends that are aircraft providers, Reticle Ventures, Steve Day there has been absolutely wonderful to work with. And we've got this network, so we just energized it. And, you know, inside kind of 10 days, uh, we have we have built this pathway to bring the first flight across. And I really hope that we can bring some more flights. And uh, again, so you raised uh, $200,000, $250,000 from one donor. But uh, how much do you need to keep this going? Well, you know, there's... There's no end to the demand, I'm afraid. Um, you know, that first donation was really to energize the system and inspire other people to give. Uh, we, we, have, we think we've secured a, a donation of another, uh, another chunk to fund the next two flights, and we need to keep going from there. So, you know, as long as there's children, we'll be raising money and, and getting planes to, to move them across. And I'm afraid there is quite a supply of, of children that need, need medical care there. So um, there's, there's a... There's a long list of people we've got to help. And you have that list. Yeah, we're building that list. And yeah, you know, we, we, we work through a Ukraine and Poland. Um, and, and what happens is these children are, are being moved there from hospitals around Ukraine. They're going to this clinic in Poland that is triaging them, so determining where they go. And, and a lot of these children have been able to be accommodated in Europe. But in this case, you know, we're helping to relieve that pressure. And as you know, there's there, every couple of days there's another train or another another bunch of ambulances bringing children to this clinic, and the, and we're trying to get them out as quickly as possible. Uh, like I say, the the priority is on the care for the children, but if we can take some of that pressure off and get them to Canada, so the better. Do you, can you tell us uh, what kind of cancers they're suffering from? I don't know that. No. Um, it, these these in particular these children in, in particular are are all cancer sufferers, so uh, they're receiving treatment. But I don't know the nature of their their illness. And are they receiving treatment at that triage uh, triage clinic in Poland, or they're just getting triaged? That that clinic in Poland really is just triage. Uh, you know, I think that their their care is ongoing, uh, and I think it depends on on each child. Uh, but that clinic is not, it's not a hospital, right? It's, it's just a, a kind of a waypoint where they get assessed and moved on from there. And that's why it's so important we get them as quickly as, Canada, as we can to Canada or, or places in Europe where they can get proper care in a proper hospital. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's yeah. no question that if you interrupt treatment, uh, uh, I'm a cancer survivor, then you oh. uh, interrupt your, your chances at a recovery or a full recovery, it's a, it's a terrible thing. And as I said, it's, it's something that is difficult and traumatic enough in, at the best of times and with the best of care. Absolutely. And this is a medical-led effort. I mean, you know, inside Ukraine, there are, there are doctors that are moving these patients on. You know, there's a professional medical staff with doctors at the clinic that are making these medical decisions. And then we have the nursing care on the plane, and we'll put doctors on the plane if that's required. And then they get them to sick kids. That, you know, when they land in Toronto, they'll be met by the sick kids staff, and, and that continuity of care is continued right into sick kids hospital. And we'll do that to other hospitals across Canada. So we are 
you know, we're not medical service providers, but we are working with them to make sure that continuity of care is maintained as much as possible, given this incredible situation. And when do you expect them exactly? Uh, we're not sure that's up in the air right now. Um, so it's, it's, it's in the next 24 to 48 hours, that's for sure. Okay, well, I'm sure they'll get a, a, a lovely reception here. And uh, I think it's a wonderful initiative for it and uh, good for you for doing it. It's, um, it's really something. Well, thanks very much. I mean, the beauty of this has been there's been su- such cooperation right from the government of Canada through all of our other partners to, to get this accomplished. And if people want to be part of this, uh, you know, we appreciate donations. We have a website evacuations.ca so that's evacuations plural dot ca uh, and we'll make sure that money gets to transport more children on the next list okay thank you so much and uh, we appreciate your work great to talk to you thank you very much Take all care. right bye-bye bye Okay, um, before we move to our break, uh, Evie has been uh, waiting patiently for her say. So, hello, Evie, how are you? Hi there. Um, well, I just want to say what I have to say, and then I, I'm going to hang up, because Good. it's not going to be something probably anybody agrees with. But you can, we can do everything. We can take you know, sanctions, everything. Russia will still get money from other countries, you know, any other country. It, it doesn't matter what we do. He's not going to stop. He's not going to stop. And that's the brutal truth. And I really think there should be a no-fly zone. And I'm saying that, taking everything into account, because everybody's doing everything around him to just, you know, they're not fake, but they're not... They're not putting the, you know, the the thing right where it has to be, and that's and destroying him. Okay. And it's it's not going to happen. He's not going to give in, and he's not going to stop unless somebody kills him. Okay, Evie. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, there are actually a growing number of people who say, yeah, we should go for the no-fly zone. Though uh, the expert types and the government types say it's way too dangerous. You don't know how he would react, and um, who knows if these negotiations are going to lead somewhere, lead to peace? Because uh, one thing that you have to do is kind of. Uh, give him an exit as graceful as possible if there's going to be one. But we'll have to see whether these are real or uh, just buying for time. Right now, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about COVID. Do we need fourth doses? We'll have that when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Should everyone over 65 get a fourth shot of COVID vaccine? Last weekend, Pfizer CEO Albert Borla said it will be necessary, and the company is now seeking FDA approval. Meanwhile, we're seeing COVID-19 waves emerge overseas in Hong Kong and in China, where daily case rates jumped to over 5,000 yesterday and prompted lockdowns of tens of millions of people. So what do you think? Are you worried about another wave? I mean, here we are getting ready to ease all the restrictions, but uh, are you worried about that? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Dr. Alon Vaisman, an infectious diseases and infection control physician at the University Health Network. Hi, Dr. Vaisman. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me, Libby. Okay, so the fourth dose, uh, it's based on data from Israel, as it often is, where uh, I think uh, many, many people over 60 have already had their fourth shot. Uh, It is safe and uh, apparently effective. Yeah, so unfortunately, the data is still limited, and some of it is based on just antibody data rather than clinical data. But the general thinking is that those who are elderly or those who are immunocompromised should be receiving a fourth dose because 
first of all, the risks associated with, many, with the dose is very, very low. But the potential benefits are very high based on these early studies showing that protection is higher amongst this group. And it's not unusual for people to require multiple doses of vaccination when we look at other types of vaccines who don't respond well, for example, hepatitis C vaccine. But uh, so, so that's where that recommendation is coming from. Well, people who are immunocompromised here and in nursing homes, I think, are already getting a fourth shot. That's right, yes. So here in Ontario and across Canada, based on the NASTY recommendations of the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, they recommend uh, that specific group absolutely to get uh, vaccinated. And uh, that that group, the the over-60 group, that's where the data is probably a little bit more limited in terms of a benefit. Okay, well, and and I I would resent calling people over-60 elderly... (laughs) Sorry, I meant the the more the further the elderly, like the over the eighty over age eighty group. Certainly okay, those, those individuals would probably derive more benefit from that dose given their further immune compromised status. Well, it it it's interesting drilling down on what Borla said. He acknowledged that yes, the the three shots are very good at um, preventing you know ser- severe disease and hospitalization and death, but not infection. And I keep talking to more and more people who have had three shots and who get COVID and who get uh, quite sick that don't have to be hospitalized, but it's uh, it's not trivial. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's important to keep in mind that there's two somewhat distinct, somewhat overlapping uh, indications to be vaccinated for COVID. One is to prevent mild disease and also to prevent transmission. And the second is to prevent you from getting very sick from the disease, from going to hospital and dying So that second, the lateral role, the vaccination is still doing a very good job. And we know that with third doses against Omicron, it's doing an even better job. But as we further go on and on through this pandemic, that first goal to try to prevent mild disease and to try to prevent transmission, that is becoming weaker and weaker and and weaker as a result of the arrival of variants. And also, of course, because the fact that most people's vaccination is now more and more in the rearview mirror, when we think about when the vaccine campaign rolled out in the first half of 2021, So this is probably where some of those comments from CEOs are coming from in terms of getting a fourth dose. It just remains to be seen exactly how much benefit the individual will derive from it. Uh, I want to uh, put a question out to the public and give the numbers out again. So uh, are you up for a fourth shot? The number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I would certainly get one, but it's interesting. I will... I've heard from a number of people, just my friends, uh, who were fine with three shots, but they say, oh, four is too many. I, uh, I don't know how, what's going to happen with that. What, what do you say to those people, Alon? Yeah, it's, it's very important to think about the messaging around the fourth dose and how we're going to think about it. So for immunocompromised individuals, the vaccine is now actually being framed as having a three-dose series kind of like other vaccines that have a three-dose series to them. So you are expected to get three doses for those who are immune-compromised. And the fourth dose is simply a booster for those individuals. For non-immune-compromised individuals, it's really debatable whether we're going to view it as a two- or three-dose series and then consider that fourth dose a booster. So you could view the successive doses as a booster. And so, you know, it's not foreign to most people to understand that your immune system wanes with other vaccines. So basically, you need a booster every once in a while to improve it. The other way to think about it is more akin to flu vaccination, where it's not so much that your immune system is waning from year to year, but it's more that new variants arise of the flu, although we don't label them variants, but essentially the same similar concept. And the reason you need to get repeated shots is so that your body has become familiar with new variants. And so either way you phrase it, I, I think it's a, that, that's the kind of way to make people understand why it's necessary potentially to have a fourth dose. Yeah, but again, what do you say to people who think it might be dangerous? Well, I think if you're tolerating the first three doses, it's very unlikely you're going to have an adverse reaction to the fourth one. So certainly an anaphylaxis or allergic reaction would be very, very unlikely. And also, um, you know, the the, the likelihood of getting any kind of reaction after having been repeatedly exposed to anything is very unlikely, not just vaccines. So I, I think there there isn't any data so far showing that those individuals are more likely to react to a fourth dose if they tolerate the first three. The other thing I'm I'm interested in 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 the explanations for this <clears throat> excuse me new wave in China, they're saying they're sort of blaming the fact that 
the lockdowns were so serious, so there was no kind of herd immunity developed. Uh, can you uh, can you explain that argument a bit? I guess what they're trying to get out there is that there's some degree of inevitability with COVID spreading through population as any society opens up. So as China lifts any kinds of local or international restrictions, there's bound to be introduction of COVID from the outside population, uh, the world, essentially. And because COVID is highly transmissible and Omicron being even more transmissible than all the previous variants, then you're likely going to see a very, very rapid spread of the disease. And in countries that have experienced previous waves, like we did in Canada, successive waves uh, may end up being less and less um, deadly. And that's exactly what we found, less and less deadly in terms of the number of people dying per case. But in China, because those individuals haven't been exposed to these waves, which, I, as I said, it's likely inevitable when you think about how transmissible COVID is, they're experiencing what we experienced previously in, in the year before. And hence, that could be their, their recommendation. That could be the their explanation. Uh, do you think that there's a danger of yet another wave to hit us here? Yeah, there, there's never, there's always a possibility of having another wave. It's, you know, and that's just the natural history of respiratory viruses in general. I, I anticipate that in the wintertime, for example, we're going to see another wave. But whether it happens now in March and April is a little bit unclear. It looks like we're trying, we're starting to head in that wrong direction again. But the big question is, is it going to result in a lot of morbidity and mortality? Is it result in a lot of overwhelming of the hospital system and people dying in the hospital? I think that's unlikely to be as severe as, as the first wave in Omicron for several reasons. One is that millions of Ontarians just got COVID and are therefore at least to some degree immune for the next few months. The second is that a lot of Ontarians are, of course, immunized. More than 90% are doubly vaccinated and a substantial number are triply vaccinated. It would seem to me unlikely we're going to experience that severe wave as we just did in January. Uh, I was noticing that the our, the replication rate is way up again. Yeah, um, the reproductive number is a little bit hard to interpret because the testing uh, indications are changed since the beginning or end of January, end of uh, December. So it's a little hard to interpret it, but there are some signals that the cases are rising uh, in the wastewater. And also, if we look to other countries who are experiencing a similar kind of trajectory in in recent months, they are now experiencing a rise in COVID cases, like in Northern Europe as well. And it kind of fits in Ontario as well with the lifting of restrictions on March 1st, that approximately two weeks or so, we'd start to see a slight rise. Right now, all we're seeing is an increase in test positivity. That's important for the audience to recognize that we're not seeing an increase in death or hospitalization, which we would expect to be a delayed indicator. All we're seeing now is uh, the wastewater increase and also the positivity rate for the test rising. What's this new variant and uh, how much of it do we have here? Do we know? Yes, the the new variant is a type or the sub-variant of the Omicron. So the BA1 is what predominated here in January. And the second one is called BA2. As far as we know, this, uh, this variant of Omicron is no more deadly uh, in terms of causing, uh, or no more deadly at all, causing hospitalization or death, but it's equally transmissible, or perhaps more transmissible, wow. and that will potentially result in more cases. But the, the really the big question that's left to answer is: if you've recently had the BA1 variant of Omicron, how susceptible are you to being infected with BA2? And that that really is a very important question because that will dictate how severe the next wave will be. Hmm. And we we don't know the answer to that. Not great, not, not not that well so far. There are some studies, in vitro studies, saying that uh, you are likely have a very good protection, which is analogous to previous variants and how they've interacted in the past. So it's very likely there's going to be a high, still a, a high protection of having recently been infected. And there's also a very high likelihood that being vaccinated will protect you against, uh, or high, high protection against death and hospitalization. And uh, would you expect the authorization for uh, the fourth shot from the FDA to come soon? That's a great question. You know, there's a lot of decisions that are made on on much less data in the past during the pandemic. Perhaps now that the pressure is a little bit off, given there isn't as much associated death and hospitalization from COVID as there was in the past, then perhaps the pressure isn't that much there. And we could wait, or the FDA would wait for actual hard data to show that there is a benefit in fourth doses. Certainly in the, in your average adult population, there isn't strong evidence for it at all. So I do wonder if they do approve it, uh, which populations 
they would start to approve it for beyond what's currently indicated. Uh, I want to end up asking you some personal questions. You know, we we were hearing about, you know, healthcare workers have been amazing through this. It's been such a huge, hard job. We've been hearing about people being burnt out. Your sense in the hospital, are things easing up a bit? Yes, absolutely. The, The fact that COVID cases have reduced substantially compared to two months ago, means that we are doing much better in terms of the workload. In, in personally, from the infectious disease infection control point of view, our division department is, is closer to baseline than it has in the past. And the rest of the hospital certainly is still dealing with a large surge of patients that is normally seen during wintertime, but is also dealing with the rehabilitation and care of those patients who recently had COVID. But as each day progresses, there are fewer and fewer patients who are admitted to hospital as a result and now being discharged and looked after in other settings. So there's definitely a trend towards improvement over the last three, four weeks. And and what about the backlog? Is is that a, a wholly different source of stress? Yes, I, that's what I'm not as familiar with. But for example, surgical backlogs, there is a very, very rapid increase in the number of surgeries over the last few weeks to try to get as many patients provided care as possible. That backlog, it'll take many months for that to be um, seen or dealt with so that patients are, you know, appropriately given their surgeries. So that that is a, a stress for certainly another part of the hospital. Yeah. Okay. Finally, just uh, last 20 seconds, Dr. Vaseman, uh, what do you want to leave us with on fourth shot, new, new variant, uh, and uh, all the rest of it? <laughs> I think uh, there's still a lot of reasons to be optimistic. In Ontario, there is the signs of plateauing of the cases, perhaps slightly rising, but uh, there is still signs to be optimistic. And people, a lot of people haven't even gotten their third doses. My main message to your audience is get your third doses if you haven't had one. And everyone is eligible for that. Uh, any adult is eligible for that. Okay. As always, thank you so much, Dr. Alon Vaisman. We really appreciate your insight. No problem. Thank you for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.